Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome again to the Right Take Podcast with Mark Tapson. Thanks for joining me. I'm excited today to be bringing on, in just a few minutes, scholar and educator and patriot Mary Graybar, who has written a couple of just brilliant books debunking the corrosive false narratives of two of the most influential works of activist historiography. In other words, the rewriting of history done in the name of social justice activism. She and I are going to talk about what those influential works are, the people responsible for them, just how much damage they have done to our national identity, our sense of ourselves as Americans, and what we can do about it. As usual, to keep up with the conversations we're having here at the intersection of politics and culture, please subscribe to The Right Take on the platform of your choice, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts and wherever fine podcasts are heard. He who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. That is a quote from a book you hear a lot about these days, the dystopian novel 1984 by Eric Blair, most famously known as George Orwell. The point of that quote is that in order to control your country's future, you must control the narrative of your country's past. And by narrative, I don't just mean a plot or even just a story. I mean a sort of a grand mythology that gives a people their shared identity. And you take control of that narrative in a number of ways, probably foremost of which is to literally rewrite the past, to create a new narrative that supplants the old. And that's a tall order unless you have the backing of every institution and branch of the culture, the news media, the entertainment field, education. And guess who owns all those fields today? That's correct, the progressive left. That brings us to historian and social justice activist Howard Zinn, Z-I-N-N. Zinn died in early 2010, but was a longtime professor of political science at Boston University until 1988. He was a member of the Communist Party, who described himself as to the left of Chairman Mao. And he's the author of more than 20 books, the most significant of which was A People's History of the United States, arguably the most influential book of supposed history on high school and college campuses today. If you've never heard of A People's History of the United States, then you and your kids must have been out of school since 1980 when the book was published, because since then, it has made its way into countless high school and college classrooms across the country. And you must not have seen the 1997 movie Goodwill Hunting either, in which multimillionaire socialist Matt Damon played a young genius who praised Zinn's book as radical truth. That movie went a long way toward introducing Zinn to a broader audience and making him a sort of pop culture icon. The book A People's History of the United States is an anti-American Marxist tract that claims to present American history through the eyes of the nation's many victim groups, the working class, Native Americans, slaves, women, blacks, all the left's designated categories of the oppressed. The book has sold more than two million copies, making it one of the best-selling history books of all time. It paints everyone from the Pilgrims to the Founding Fathers to the George Bush-era U.S. government as rapacious, genocidal, terrorist bigots. Everywhere Zen looked, he saw evidence of American evil. Meanwhile, he aligned himself with the nation's most far-left revolutionaries. To give you an idea of his perspective as an historian, 
Zen once said, quote, there is no such thing as pure fact, unquote, by which he meant that the proper role of educators was not to teach objective truths, but rather to lead social struggle by promoting student collectivism and emphasizing the role of working people, women, uh, people of color, and organized social movements. It's impossible to overstate the role Zen and his mendacious book have played in our educational system, churning out a couple of generations of American students who have learned to despise this country for its purported racism, oppression, and exploitation. There's a lot more to say about Zen and his vast pernicious effect on our nation, but let's move on to the other most notorious controversial work of activist history, the New York Times' so-called 1619 Project. Let me give you a little background about that for those of you who may have only a general notion of what it's all about. And by the way, a lot of the following information and details and some of what I said earlier about Howard Zinn are drawn from the profile pages of the 1619 Project and Howard Zinn at a site called discoverthenetworks.org, which is a sort of encyclopedia of leftist networks. It is an amazing resource run by the David Horwitz Freedom Center. Check it out sometime, discoverthenetworks.org. Inaugurated in a 100-page special issue of the New York Times Magazine in August 2019, the 1619 Project began mostly as a collection of essays whose unifying theme is the claim that America's founding was grounded not in liberty for all, but in the original sin of slavery, a sin of which we can never be redeemed because racism is embedded in our nation's very DNA, which is something that Barack Obama has said about America, too. The 1619 Project was the brainchild of Nicole Hannah-Jones, a black nationalist and staff writer at the Times. The year 1619 refers to the arrival of the first Africans in the English colonies of North America, and the project's goal was to reset our nation's founding from 1776 to 1619, and to reframe our history not as the extraordinary saga of the great American experiment, but as an ugly tale of unmatched racism and exploitation. The 1619 Project directly reflects Hannah Jones's own angry worldview, which she stated explicitly in a letter to the editor of the Notre Dame Observer in 1995. She wrote, quote, The white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief of the modern world. Christopher Columbus and those like him were no different from Hitler. The crimes they committed were unnecessarily cruel and can only be described as acts of the devil, unquote. That, in essence, represents the philosophical underpinning of the 1619 Project. When the project was first unveiled, a Times editorial board member wrote, quote, In the days and weeks to come, we will publish more essays demonstrating that nearly everything that has made America exceptional grew out of slavery, unquote. And the Times editorial board collectively wrote that, quote, the 1619 Project aims to understand 1619 as our true founding and to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are, unquote. Hannah Jones wrote an introduction to the 1619 Project titled, America Wasn't a Democracy Until Black Americans Made It One, in which she argued that Americans... America's Declaration of Independence from England was nothing more than a sham designed chiefly to protect the institution of slavery. American ideals such as freedom and equality of rights were, in her view, merely rhetorical smokescreens in whose name the country's founders pursued their own material self-interests, 
Hannah Jones instead claims that the real founders who have fought to make our democracy's founding ideals true have always been black Americans. A man named James Oakes, himself a leftist, was one of four major American historians to sign a joint statement challenging the historical distortions and the ideological bent of the 1619 Project when it came out. Oakes wrote, quote, These are really dangerous tropes. They're not only ahistorical, they're actually anti-historical. The function of those tropes is to deny change over time. They say, look at how terribly black people were treated under slavery. And look at the incarceration rate for black people today. It's the same thing. Nothing changes. There has been no industrialization. There has been no great migration. We're all in the same boat we were back then. And that's what original sin is. It's passed down. Every single generation is born with the same original sin. There's nothing we can do to get out of it. If it's the DNA, there's nothing you can do. Unquote. Another world-renowned historian who repudiated the 1619 Project is Gordon Wood, who co-signed a letter authored by a group of historians and sent to the letter the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Magazine, urging him to correct the project's many historical errors. The Times refused. For her 1619 project, Nicole Hannah-Jones was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Commentary. Of course, the Pulitzer Prize has about as much integrity and credibility as the Nobel Peace Prize, by which I mean none. Then the Pulitzer Center, as the 1619 Project's official education partner, promoted curricula based on the project into more than 4,500 classrooms nationwide between August 2019 and May 2020. Its influence is only continuing to grow. And to dig deeper into that, let me bring on now the Right Take podcast guest today, Mary Gravar. Mary Graybar is a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. She's taught at a number of colleges and universities in Georgia, most recently Emory University. She's the founder of an education reform initiative called the Dissident Prof Education Project and writes frequently for such outlets as The Federalist, Front Page Magazine, and American Greatness, as well as scholarly articles. And she's the author of two books in particular that I want to explore today, Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America, and Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. Mary, welcome to the Right Take Podcast. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for making the time to join us. I gave a little background to listeners uh, before you came on about Howard Zinn and the 1619 Project and their ubiquitous influence in education. Let's begin with the left's rock star historian, Howard Zinn. What has been the, yes, what has been the intellectual legacy of over 40 years of his book being taught as the real history of America and becoming arguably the most influential work of history in our classrooms? Yeah, well, um, you know, there, as of this date, there have been about 4 million copies sold. I mean, it's a record-breaking book in terms of sales. Um, but even though he plagiarized much of it, um, he took credit for changing 
people's conceptions of Christopher Columbus, and we're coming up on um, you know the Chris the Columbus holiday, and I. I would wager that if you went and took a survey on the street and asked any millennial (laughs) who Christopher Columbus was, uh, they would tell you that he committed genocide, that he chopped off the hands of the gentle Arawak people, um, that he was lusting for gold, he was a driven capitalist. And if you ask them, well, where did they learn this? They would say Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. Um, They also could have learned it from textbooks and other lessons, which are now taking their cue from Howard Zinn. You you often raise the point of Zinn's presentist approach to writing history. What is presentism and why is that approach to historiography so wrongheaded? Well, it's... The pursuit of history, like the pursuit of studying literature or any of the other humanities, philosophy as well, I I suppose, is not for any pragmatic reasons, but uh, for itself. Uh, The historian uh, ideally attacks his uh, or investigates his subject with curiosity to find out what happened. Um, to uncover those dark corners of history and to present a bigger picture to people of what went on in the past. He has no political objective. Um, But presentism, uh, which is something that Howard Zinn wrote about in an essay uh, for a volume that was dedicated to Herbert Marcuse, Howard Zinn said, well, you know, historians need to get out of their ivory towers. They should not be satisfied to sit among dusty archives and looking for information and sort of recreating what happened in the past. They should be concerned with what is going on in society today. And in 1967, the concern, of course, was the Vietnam War. Um, And he was a leader of protests and encouraging students uh, to burn draft cards and so forth, as well as the idea of race and the civil rights movement. So So that's what he said the historian's objective should be. But when you introduce a political goal into scholarship, you necessarily have to distort the evidence that you find. Um, So if you want to, you know, prove that American society is, you know, through and through racist, you have to eliminate those instances where it was not racist or, um, you know, comparisons to other places in the world. So you... Uh, find your evidence very selectively with a political goal in mind. And, uh, you know, historians have been taking their cue from Howard Zinn and others who were promoting that new approach to the study of history. And when you approach history from that perspective, when it stops being uh, an investigation into the truth, and, and uh, you have a political agenda behind it, the truth necessarily suffers, doesn't it? 
Yes, and that's what, you know, Oscar uh, Handlin said. He was very critical of um, the direction historiography was going in and was writing about it in the 1970s. He was very critical of Howard Zinn, uh, you know, for that very reason. So um, you are distorting it. He, you know, he slammed Howard Zinn. And even, uh, even my late friend, Eugene Genovese, uh, though he was a committed Marxist at the time, um, still felt that you should not distort the evidence to um, meet a political objective. He felt that the evidence would show the true Marxist way that is until he became a conservative and he saw, you know, he eventually woke up and, um, you know, recognized what evil had been committed under uh, the Marxist banner. Yeah, you mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, Zinn's take on Christopher Columbus. Can you think of another especially blatant or uh, egregious example of bias in Zinn's book uh, apart from Columbus? Yes. Um, you know, the Vietnam War, of course, that's the cause that Howard Zinn was um, involved in, and he wanted the communists to win, as he did at all times. And uh, he and uh, Graves, I think he became a senator, were co-editors of the Pentagon Papers. And that was originally published in a four-volume hardcover set. And these were gov- government documents, um, you know, that were presented as, you know, this kind of proof that the reason that we were in Vietnam, we were in China, was because of the resources there. Um, And as I went through that, you know, I compared what he was saying in a people's history of the United States to what was said uh, in that volume that Zinn himself supposedly edited. And I found that um, in several of the documents where he was making the case that we were not really fighting communism, but we were uh, seeking uh, you know, the riches of Indochina, that he just locked off the ends of sentences. And so where uh, people in the government were expressing fears about communist imperialism, um, the way Zinn quoted their words, it seemed that um, the government officials were uh, wanted were being imperialists themselves, that they wanted the resources. So it was very deceptive. Um, uh, there was a, a, he grossly misrepresented uh, a book by Douglas Pike about the Viet Cong. Um, Doug, Douglas Pike said that um, the Viet Cong were committing genocide. Howard Zinn twisted his words around to make it appear that Pike was saying that, um, you know, that the Viet Cong were just these community activists and, uh, you know, having these kind of town hall meetings with the Vietnamese villagers. I mean, just, a, a, you know, 180 degree uh, flip on that. Well, I have to say that your book, debunking Howard Zinn really is just, it's riveting. Uh, It's a great work of scholarship, but also highly readable. I I cannot recommend it enough. 
Um, you wrote that book back in 2019, so it's pretty recent. What has been the response to it, to your book, from other academics and educators? And how much of that response has been animus directed at you personally rather than disputing your scholarship? Oh, it, it's all been <laughs> directed that way, you know, except for, uh, you know, colleagues that I know on the conservative side. Um, you know, when I participated in the White House Conference on American History on Constitution Day in 2020, uh, on the train ride back here up to uh, New York, I was bombarded with these insulting depictions and claims and I kind of gathered them up. No one had seemed to have heard of my book, but all of a sudden, you know, there they were. And, um, you know, here I was at a conference, uh, you know, with President Trump there. Um, there is a book. Um, this is very, very, um, you know, horrifying to me. A book that's published by the University of Georgia Press, uh, UGAs, where I got my PhD, by Robert Cohen and a co-author. Now, he teaches at New York University, I believe. And it, as you know, um, in debunking Howard Zinn, I lay out passages side by side to show how Howard Zinn is plagiarizing from other sources. I had written Robert Cohen um, before his book came out because I read about it and I told him, I said, you should know that Howard's in plagiarized and I have evidence of this. What he writes in this book, which is intended for teachers, published by University Press, what he says in this book is that there is no evidence that Howard's in plagiarized. Oh, my Lord. Yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, and how about on social media? I mean, has there been a kind of a public, not so much, well, let's say non-scholarly, has there been kind of a public uh, response on social media to your book uh, attacking you and also to your debunking the 1619 Project book? What's it like on social media or are you much of a, um, a Twitterer? I Well, I, I post, but I think I'm one of those... Um, people uh, who is shadow banned. <laughs> my, my posts don't get much attention. I was following Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, until somehow she sort of noticed me among her hundreds of thousands of followers, and I debated a point with her, and then I was just blocked. And um, so, you know, the, you know, people who are critical of me just block me on social media. They do not want to debate. Uh, there is this defender of Howard Zinn um, who uh, his last name is Oberg. He teaches at uh, SUNY Geneseo and he specializes in native American studies. He blocked me too. Um, they will just block you Um and but what I found is there are a lot of trolls on Amazon. So if you go to my Amazon page, <laughs> you will see people a bunch of one stars um, from people 
who are not verified purchasers. Now, I was told by Amazon when my books first came out that those who did had not made a verified purchase would not be able to post their comments. So I had to have friends order from Amazon uh, who wanted to, you know, post about my book. Uh, so, uh, you know, they're out there, they will attack you. They, you know, they don't, they don't even, they don't want to hear a word from you. They are on their course um, of, you know, history, uh, belief, uh, they're true believers in Howard Zinn and now true believers in Nicole Hannah-Jones. Mm-hmm. And Nicole Hannah-Jones, the um, the overseer, I guess you would call her, of uh, the 1619 Project, she's well on her way now to becoming the Howard Zinn of our time, isn't she? Uh, that, that 1619 Project is being flooded into educational institutions all over the country, despite having been debunked by, as I recall, hundreds of scholars including probably most thoroughly by yourself in, in your book, Debunking the 1619 Project. Uh, even though they're 40 years apart, is there a shared motivation or theme, you would say, behind Zinn's People's History of the United States and the 1619 Project? Yes. Um, well, Howard Zinn's, uh, you know, paved the way. And um, both are motivated by Marxist objectives. Howard Zinn, um, you know, was a communist. He was a Communist Party member. Um, and I go by the authority of Ron Radish, who was himself briefly a member of the party. He's a historian. He's looked at his FBI files. Um, and But even though Zinn was probably given orders by party leaders to drop his official membership and go into the institutions. He remained a true believer in Marxism and the communist objective. Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, her, you know, if you can find her tweets, uh, you will see that she aligns with the squad, the far left squad. She is a Marxist. She is an admirer of W.E.B. Du Bois who became a member of the Communist Party, was a Marxist. She has praised Fidel Castro and Cuba. Uh, she hates, you know, free enterprise, uh, our constitutional form of government. And her objectives are to have a Marxist regime where there is a redistribution of wealth. And her tool for doing that is going to be reparations. Mm-hmm. So the, the impetus behind their works is really, it's not a pursuit of the truth, which uh, is presumably the historian's, uh, you know, should be the historian's objective, but it's, it's to serve a subversive uh, political agenda. And that's, that's what's motivating them, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, and how does that, how do these two works fit into or reflect the larger progressive trends that we've seen in education over the last few decades? Well, yeah, I mean, it, there has been, um, you know, I mean, a couple decades ago, um, you could have maybe shamed a historian <laughs> by saying, hey, look, um, your footnote here 
says that this source said this, but here you left out these words. And what he really meant was this. Nowadays, they don't even care anymore. The social justice goal is the one um, that is that motivates everything and truth be damned. Um, I've also noticed that there has been this merging of creative writing and factual writing or nonfiction and fiction. And uh, I noticed that under Common Core, which was introduced under the Obama regime, and that was a new federal um, curriculum um, that was introduced into the states with bribes of federal money. And there, um, what happened was that English teachers were instructed to teach history, uh, primary texts, uh, to you know look at nonfiction instead of what they had been trained to do, which was to teach poetry, um, short stories, novels, and plays. And um, so we have this merging. And if you look at the 1619 project, as I you know, point out in debunking the 1619 project, there, when you look at the total number of contributions, there are more creative writers than there are of essayists who write about historical events. So what's being taught now you know, what, you know, they claim is poetry. I would quibble with that, but they say it's poetry, but that's being presented to students as history. So the truth no longer matters. I guess what matters now is one's own personal truth, that that's really taken precedence over the idea of a universal truth with a capital T. And so that I assume that's why they would allow in creative writers um, as opposed to uh, scholarly historians. So th these people are sort of expressing their truth and their perspective. And that that's got just as much credibility these days as uh, historical fact, correct? Yeah. Um, so you see this emphasis on lived experience, right? <laughs> what, it, what is your experience? Well, you know, the experience of Thomas Jefferson doesn't really matter. His lived experience doesn't matter. If you are a member of one of the groups that matters, then your lived experiences dominates. And um, I had an interesting exchange with Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, where I, you know, questioned this. I said, you know, in her lead essay in the 1619 Project, She's talking about, you know, these big um, events in American history, but she's also talking about her own personal history. You know, her father who, you know, um, who came, whose family came from Mississippi were sharecroppers. He was discriminated against and on and on. And this is her personal story. And, you know, it may be true. But it's it's one story and, it you know, and so I questioned her on this. And of course, we also find out that the story that she presents is not quite all there is to it because, you know, she's not 
that bright because she reveals things about herself on Twitter and, and in all these interviews. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that her father could not get ahead because he was black um, is complicated by the fact that as she revealed, he was also an alcoholic. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I pointed this out in, a, in an interview and, um, and she said, uh, you know, what my story is not history. What do you think history is? So this is like this extremely egotistical uh, view of history. History is what happened to me you know, <laughs> and uh, people like me and people who agree with me. It has nothing to do with the whole scheme, uh, you know, with, the, with all the diverse experiences and um, of, you know, what founders had established and what important people had established in this country. It's about Nicole Hannah-Jones and people who are just like her. address another claim that the 1619 Project makes, which is that the real reason the American colonists fought for independence from Britain was to preserve the institution of slavery. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that is that was a claim that was made, and then it was uh, justified by the editor by referring to Dunmore, uh, uh, Dunmore's proclamation uh, you know, which came late. The fighting had already started. We'd had the Boston Tea Party. Um, we'd had, you know, uh, Battle of Bunker Hill. Um, George Washington was already in Massachusetts. So when you look at the chronology of it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, the the reason the claims that Nicole Hannah-Jones makes in the hardcover edition of the 1619 Project is that um, these were white men, they were living in Virginia, and so they, they were the ones who were instrumental, you know, in the founding. So because they were white, because they were from Virginia, which was the first place where we had slaves and the largest slave-owning colony, um, slavery was the motiv motivating factor. But she ignores all the other events, the battles that had already begun before this proclamation was issued, which, which promised freedom to any enslaved person who came over to the British side. Um, in my... Um... In my opening remarks, I reminded listeners of the movie Goodwill Hunting and uh, activist, Matt, activist Matt Damon's glorification of Zen's book, People's History of the United States. How have pop culture celebrities helped promote not only Zen's book, but also the 1619 Project? Well, you know, you, you had that movie and, um, you know, that's... I, I've actually talked to people who say that they learned about Howard Zinn's book through Goodwill Hunting, you know, the 1997 movie, uh, which was written uh, by Matt Damon, who grew up with, uh, you know, next door to Howard Zinn and his wife. Um, 
and admired him naturally because he grew up next to him. And um, so all these, yeah, uh, rock bands have embraced um, uh, Howard Zinn, you know, Pearl Jam, you know, had a song dedicated to him. Um, When Howard Zinn died in 2010, all these tributes came from Hollywood. Jane Fonda wrote a, a tribute. Um, he, you know, was celebrated, um, Danny Glover read from, uh, you know, uh, People Speaks, um, you know, they've had these readings of the uh, primary documents that were collected by Howard Zinn of radicals and Marxists. Um, so this is an event, the tickets are sold. Um, 1619 Project as well. Um, you had this glitzy, um, you know, promotion. Uh, I'm forgetting her name because I don't keep up with Hollywood. Janelle, someone who was on a beach and um, promoting the 1619 Project during the Oscars. And um, you get these... Um, endorsements from uh, celebrities and Hollywood and and these people you know they don't they don't know much about history and they quite frankly don't care to find out they're not curious and they're far far from being scholars yeah in fact uh, Nicole Hannah Jones and the New York Times have actually made lucrative deals with Hollywood right including um, having Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey yes. is going to, uh, yeah, she's going to make a, a feature film out of the 1619 Project. Uh, so Hollywood has made deals with her and the Times to create both fictional and non-fictional spinoffs. Um, when was the last time a a patriotic historian was offered a movie deal? That's what I want to know. How, yeah, how many times yeah. has Hollywood? Yeah, has Hollywood come knocking on your door to make a movie out of debunking Howard Zinn? <laughs> huh. And now I, I wish they would. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? And along those lines, let's talk about the big money that pushes the 1619 Project, uh, which is a topic that uh, you wrote about for Front Page Mag earlier this year. What have the powerhouse organizations of Random House, the New York Times, and Mark Zuckerberg's company, Meta, done or are still doing behind the scenes to disseminate uh, the, the 1619 Project educators all over the country? Yeah, well, um, it was being um, promoted on Facebook. Um, you know, Zuckerberg is funding initiatives uh, to insert the lessons that are made from the 1619 Project into schools. Uh, there is the Pulitzer Center that's funded by Pierre Omidyar, largely the billionaire who founded eBay, I think it was. Um, and you've got not not only the Pulitzer Center, but other organizations that are inserting news of the 1619 Project. There's New Zela, which uh, adapts news stories to grade uh appropriate grade levels and it's inserted into schools. Um, 
You've got the Zen Education Project that's promoting the 1619 Project. And uh, so you've got all these left-wing initiatives that are just pumping this material into the schools. And they may not appear as, you know, formal lessons uh, with entire classes devoted to them, but students are getting the 1619 Project message and they're getting the Howard Zinn version of history as well. have both written articles, I only recently realized, uh, for our mutual friend filmmaker Gloria Greenfield's blog site at uh, DocEmmettProductions.com. I'd like to have her on soon, actually, to talk about her, her documentaries. But anyway, you wrote an article for that blog about how the 1619 Project distorts the legacy and the message of the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Uh, the, the, the article is called The 1619 Project, Stripping Away Manhood, which I thought was an interesting title. How did the 1619 Project deny Frederick Douglass the full humanity that he fought for? Yeah, well, um, it, it presents him as a victim, as bitter, as enraged, um, as, uh, you know, uh, someone who only said the first part of his 4th of July speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July. Um, You know, after the war, he, uh, you know, said, you know, he said to, there was a, a speech he gave, he said, do nothing with us. You know, he was against the, uh, the sort of the patronizing, um, liberal attitudes, you know, that, that look down with pity upon black people. And, you know, that of course is, uh, you know, it's, it's dehumanizing, it's emasculating, it takes away agency from people. Um, he was very adamant about that. And he was, uh, you know, very angry about this kind of approach of pity and, uh, you know, um, I don't want to say <laughs> that, that he, you know, that, that, that it, it basically took away, it took away manhood. All he wanted was really the right to vote and the opportunity uh, to work and for the freed blacks to make their own way. Um, you know, and you look back on slavery and it was a uh, very paternalistic, uh, the enslaved had to be taken care of. They, you know, the master had to, you know, as Jefferson found out, you know, it's incredible responsibility, for, you know, imagine, you know, doing this for one other family, uh, you know, providing food and shelter and clothing. And um, so uh, the approach of the 1619 Project is basically the same, that um, the government uh, should be providing everything. Um, and, 
you know, in, in the form of, you know, food and clothing and everything. And if there are any problems, it's not due to the choices one makes or one's free will. It's due to the circumstances and it presents, um, you know, African-Americans as helpless victims who are incapable of helping themselves. Mm -hmm. I think I remember reading in your book, Debunking the 1619 Project, that in all of that project, there were only two sentences devoted to Frederick Douglass. Um, your book, that book, I should say, Debunking the 1619 Project, it was published in hardcover last year, but it's it's now out in paperback with a new 35-page appendix, appendix in which you absolutely demolish the shoddy scholarship and the thinly veiled activism of Nicole Hannah-Jones and her uh, collaborators. But they, as we talked about earlier, they remain largely impervious to facts and evidence, right? Because they simply don't address the errors or the falsehoods that others point out. They either ignore the complaints or they try to discredit the scholars like yourself. They raise the specter of censorship and book burning, uh, you know, they claim that, oh, you know, the right just doesn't want America to know about the history of slavery. Um, or they draw the always reliable race card and they get away with it because they're backed by this juggernaut of a culture that is controlled by the left. It's a culture of ideologically sympathetic fellow academics and figures in the news media and in Hollywood. So we're, it's, it's kind of an uphill battle pushing back against this narrative? Is there something we can do uh, as a nation to effectively reject these, these false historical narratives and get them out of our schools? Well, I, you know, I, I insist that, uh, you know, we need to, uh, you know, insist on the truth um, to point out the lies uh, and the shoddy scholarship. Yeah. And I was, motivated to write this appendix because of all the claims that Nicole Hannah-Jones was making about uh, the scholarship uh, that was going into the hardcover edition that would answer all the objections of the critics. And there would be a thousand endnotes. Well, there are about a thousand endnotes, but that doesn't mean anything because they're endnotes that sources are um, people uh, historians who care as little for the truth as she does. Um, if they are legitimate historians, the words are twisted around. Um, key elements are left out. Um, sometimes uh, the sources go back uh, to something like a web page that gives no information. And one footnote or a note goes back to Nicole Hannah-Jones herself. So, um, you know, I wanted to um, point that out. So I think what we need to do is we need to fight back. One of the claims they make is, well, you know, uh, the arguments they make against people who are fighting this pernicious pornog uh, pornography or propaganda, I would say it's also pornography in a sense, um, you know, parents, school board members, grandparents, common citizens, taxpayers. Uh, one of the weapons they've had is, well, we've got the PhDs. We're the historians. You know, these days that in itself is not evidence of, of you know, being historically accurate. 
as we know. So what I wanted to do was to provide a resource and to challenge the scholarship. Uh, okay, you say you've got, uh, you know, this many people with PhDs, but what about their scholarship? I mean, uh, scholarship is corrupt. Academia is corrupt these days. And um, so I wanted to provide evidence for people um, to refute the claims that are being made, uh, you know, in terms of what happened in history and to kind of knock down these people from pedestals that they should not be on in the first place. Uh, we know Nicole Hannah-Jones is not a historian, and if she marshals a bunch of people around her who claim to be historians, that does not make what she writes legitimate. And, uh, you know, I try to use my own training as a scholar to um, refute all those claims and hope that it will help people who are there fighting this, uh, you know, uh, propaganda that's being foisted on students. Considering that the left has made capturing the field of education in this country a fanatical pursuit for half a century, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of education in America? Are, are conservatives simply going to have to create a kind of a parallel educational system? Um, yes, we have to create a parallel educational system. Uh, I'm optimistic by the numbers of parents who are withdrawing their children from public schools. Um, you know, we need to take the power out of the teachers unions. Uh, they're a big source of the corruption. We know now that they are not concerned with imparting knowledge or skills to students, um, but see uh, children as their pawns uh, for their larger political agendas, which, um, you know, are just sometimes diabolical from what we see on social media. You know, they've revealed themselves. And so, yes, we need to have a parallel system. And I think that is forming. I think it should have, you know, started forming, um, you know, earlier. Uh, but I think with, um, you know, what has happened during COVID and parents got a glimpse of what was actually being taught to their children, I think, you know, that's sort of been a turnaround. And it's something, you know, that I've been advocating for years ago. I, um, you know, thought that there should be cameras in schools that Parents should see what teachers are doing here, what they are telling their students. Because I knew from going to their conferences and doing my own research that, you know, that they were they were left wing radicals uh, indoctrinating their students. Uh, yeah, I totally agree about the parallel educational system and a parallel culture. I'm a homeschooler myself. Um, and uh, part of a homeschooling community, and it, it's growing. I think I read recently that 10% of American parents now are homeschooling, and that's uh, the highest it's been. So that's good news. 
Mary, there is a lot more to be said about this, all this stuff. So I hope you will come back again. Let me ask you a final question. Whom are you going to debunk next? <laughs> well, there's so many things to debunk. Um, I've got a list someplace, but right now I'm finishing up a project that I've been working on for 11 years. Uh, it's a biography of the late George Schuyler, uh, America's first black conservative. He lived from 1895 to 1977 and uh, just a, a fascinating character. And I'm trying to wrap that up right now, uh, even as I go around uh, speaking about, um, you know, the truth about Christopher Columbus and the truth about our founding. So that, that well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to debunk the debunkers of him. He's been pushed down the memory hole of history, and I'm going to be um, bringing him out, um, uh, you know, revealing his, his wonderful writing, his ideas, uh, which deserve to be uh, exposed to Americans. Excellent. Well, I, I urge everybody listening to go out and find physical copies of these two books, Debunking Howard Zinn and Debunking the 1619 Project, to own them and share them with your kids, or the, at least the information with your kids, because you never know, and I'm totally serious about this, you never know which countercultural books Amazon will make unavailable in the future. So I urge people to go out and, and buy physical copies of the books. Mary Graybar, thank you so much for your time and your insights today. Thanks for coming on the Right Take podcast, and please keep fighting the good fight. I will. Thank you, Mark. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.